0: Welcome everyone to another podcast. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us. We are now in the midst of the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission. Let's take a step back in history, obviously. The Kerner Commission was convened by then President Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1967. The report came out in 1968, which is why this is the 50th anniversary. What the Kerner Commission was called to do was to look at why Detroit, Newark, and a hundred other black communities around this country exploded in anger over police brutality and other things that faced those communities. So when the Kerner Commission came out, they found that, yes, police brutality was at the heart of this, but so was white supremacy and racism, the first time those words were used in an official document. They also wrote about the poverty faced by people in those communities. And what did President Johnson do? Well, he silenced that report. He refused to release that report because he was in the middle of the war on poverty and the war in Vietnam, and felt it was attacking him for not doing enough and continuing the war in Vietnam. It was nevertheless published because they already had a contract with Bantam Books. This was an esteemed panel for that period of time in our history, run by Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois, hence the name Kerner Commission. There's only one surviving person from that commission, and that's former Oklahoma Senator Fred Harris. He's a populist Democrat who ran for president in 1976. Full disclaimer, I spent a little time working this campaign back then in 1976. Earlier this week, we met with Fred Harris when he was in Baltimore to talk about the Kerner Commission. We explored his experience on the commission and his life story and what led an Oklahoma farm boy from a dirt farm, as he describes, to become this fighter against racism in America and for populist left-wing social justice. How did that happen? We talked to him about that, and we talked to him about the Kerner Commission and why that report is so relevant today, sad to say, it could have been written yesterday. So let we bring you our conversation with former Senator Fred Harris, the last surviving member of the Kerner Commission. So Senator Harris, again, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you and have thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Baltimore. Yeah, thank you very much. So I have to ask you a personal question first. You bet. So you're, when you were a kid, you grew up in Oklahoma. Yeah. Your parents were sharecroppers, right. tenant farmers. Um and i 'm always curious what your sojourn was that brought you to a point where you saw the dangers of racism and other things in this country, given where so much of America is now and so much of your home state right right yeah, which has gone really very republican and very right right so what was it about your
1: life that that kind of moved you in a certain direction and thinking in a different way you know i i don't know exactly i 've been asked that several times. I do remember this, for example, when I was about a junior in high school, uh, I was in a speech communications course one semester, and we had to give a recitation from Shakespeare. And I chose, uh, from the Merchant of Venice, Shylock's speech, you know, if you prick a Jew, won't he bleed and so forth. And I, I, I never, I didn't know what a Jew was, (laughs) <laughs> down there in Walters, <laughs> Oklahoma. And, I, and so I changed it to Negro. Huh. We, now, in my little hometown of Walters, Oklahoma, about 1,500 population, no black people lived. I think one time it was against the law, uh, at any rate. Uh, but they're in a nearby town, the uh, Temple, there were, were black people. And I knew uh, some way, the news or whatever, that uh, they weren't treated properly. So I changed that, if you prick a negro, won't they bleed and so on. In other words, aren't we like everybody else? Then there's one other uh, thing in my life, which was really earlier. When I was 12, I went with a great aunt on the train down to Decatur, Mississippi, where my dad came from as a kid, and uh, I was walking along the road, dirt road into town in Decatur with a great uncle. And coming down, we got to a railroad track that crossed the road, and here coming down the track was uh, an elderly black man, gray-haired, and my uh, great uncle uh, yelled to him, come over here, he called him by his first name, I don't remember what it was. He said, I want you to meet uh, Cliff Harris's grandson. And um, that was my uh, grandfather, Andrew Clifton Harris. And uh, the the old man came over, as I said, gray-haired. I'm 12 years old. He took his hat off, uh, and he said, uh, 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 do you mind shaking hands with a colored? He said, I don't mean anything by it, but I just want to shake hands with uh, uh, Mr. Cliff's grandbaby. Well, that really affected me. I'm a 12-year-old kid. And uh, also, I I was staying with uh, some kinfolk's cousins or or whatever they were, uncles, great-uncles, and they were living in an old family home uh, which was made out of heartwood on the edge of Decatur, heartwood pine, never been painted inside, and uh, apparently they did this every year. There was a black couple maybe 50 years old. They came and they spent all day long from daylight to dark cleaning that house. They washed the walls down with lye and they washed all the bed clothes and then hung them out uh, and so forth. Took the whole day. And uh, my kinfolks paid them uh, with a, bar- a jar of green beans, uh, home canned jar of green beans and a bucket of uh, blue ribbon molasses, cane syrup, that was what they got and I later, when I've told that uh, as I as I have I said they didn't know that that was why they were working for 25 cents an hour and I I saw that when I was 12 years old so all of that I think must have affected me and of course when I went to the Senate uh, with Robert Kennedy I was on uh, uh, Abe Ribkoff's subcommittee that was studying uh, Urban problems and so forth, race and poverty, and and all that was behind me by the time we got around to the creating the Kerner Commission.
0: Yeah, the Kerner Commission. So in 1967, there were these, there were rebellions and riots in Detroit and uh, Newark and you know, other cities in America, and President Lyndon Johnson decided to form this commission. Right. 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 Um, and you were appointed to the commission, right? That's right. It was the commission, Yeah, I always forget the name for some reason. The, the National Advisory Commission on S- Civil Disorders, the Kerner Commission, named right. after Otto Kerner, the governor of Illinois, who was chair of that commission. Correct. So you spent a year putting this, a, a report together.
1: <coughs> well, we, we, we were appointed uh, July the 29th uh, of 1967, and we reported, our final report was uh, supposed to be on March 1st, 1968, although it was leaked to the press, and it came out a day early. It came out uh, on the 29th of February. So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. That, that report was pretty—I remember when it came out. Yes.
0: And it, you know, we'll, get, we'll get to the heart of it in a moment, but it was a very damning report about the race and poverty in our country and right. the state we were in. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I'm also curious about, again, I mean, this for you, the commission was made up of mostly white men except for two. People, yeah. right?
1: Roy Wilkins, head of the NAACP, and Senator Ed Brooke of Massachusetts, well, Massachusetts um,
0: who was a Republican, African American yes. uh, senator. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really curious about the d- dynamic inside. And your, and again, for you, as you began to l- peel back the layers of this onion of race and racism and poverty in America. Right. I mean, you must have learned a lot. It must. Some
1: of it must have been absolutely dumbfounding and shocking as you were going through it. Well, it was, uh, I already knew these things, but uh, it really brought them home more. We put faces on people. For, for example, we first held uh, 20 days of hearings, about 140 witnesses, I think, from all the way from Dr. Martin Luther King to J. Edgar Hoover, the hearings in Washington. We hired a great staff and they went out uh, all over the country to the riot cities and they did interviews and so forth. And we, the commissioners, there were 11 of us, divided up into teams and went ourselves to the riot cities. Uh, and uh, my team, it was me and uh, Mayor John Lindsay, we'd hit it North off. From New York City. Yes, from New York. Liberal from Republican Mayor of New York City. Yes, we had totally right. disparate uh, backgrounds. but. Really right, disparate backgrounds. Yes. Right away, we uh, Still stockings, no shoes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. Right away, we uh, we hit it off. We knew we were uh, similarly motivated and wanted to really get at the deep causes. And so we we were a team all the way through. We, we uh, really led the operation of the commission. But anyway, uh, going out in the country, first we, we went to Cincinnati. And uh, it took our staff more than a week to uh, get a group of young black men and women. These are educated, professional people, not the kind of people who were involved in the riots. They didn't want to meet with us, but finally set up a meeting. And uh, they wouldn't shake hands, none of them would shake hands with us. They wouldn't even look at us. And they they all said, uh, one way or another, I don't want to be here, this is a waste of time. You white politicians, you're not going to do anything. You're just like those racists, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey. And uh, mm. we, John and I, he being the mayor and me having uh, been in the, uh, the, the Ribbentrop Committee looking into urban problems, we were not shocked to know that there was that kind of alienation and hostility in the country and on the part of black people. but. Really, this was a very sobering uh, kind of experience. We went uh, out on the street in uh, Cincinnati where the riots had occurred, accompanied by uh, uh, an anti-poverty worker, a local guy. And we ran onto to a, a, a group of idling young men, young black men on the street corner there. Uh, and they were typical of the people who had taken part in riots. And we, John and I were in suits, and so these, these these young black guys jumped up, and they said, who are you? One of them said, who are you, the FBI? We said, no, well, the the young poverty worker told them what we were doing and, and, and why. And, and, and then, just in a chorus, they all started saying, we need jobs, baby, get us a job, baby, that's what we need, jobs. And one young guy said, Mr. Johnson, he got me a job last summer, but it run out. He was talking about President Johnson and a summer work program. And that was a kind of, that became a sort of the theme of stuff we heard mostly and, and also that we eventually included in the report. I went in, uh, oh, well, both of us, John and I, John Lindsay and I, went to Milwaukee, and uh, I spent the better part of a morning in a, a black barber shop and uh, talking to these young men coming in, uh, all black uh, men, most of them, virtually all of them, from somewhere in the South, Birmingham or Jackson, Mississippi, or somewhere. And uh, the first question they had come uh, there looking for jobs, and just about the time uh, there weren't any jobs. Uh, uh, automation and uh, globalization, the jobs have moved away or disappeared altogether.
0: Well, that's when it began.
1: Yeah, and a lot of them were still looking for jobs. And anyway, I, I've My first question to the first bunch that came in uh, puzzled them. They they didn't know how to answer, and I finally figured out why. The question was, do you find as much uh, discrimination here in Milwaukee as you found in Birmingham or wherever they came from? And the reason it puzzled them is, if I finally found out, is in Milwaukee they didn't see any white people at all. There was more segregation. Uh, in Milwaukee, this northern city, than where they'd come from. Uh, and that uh, was very impressive because, you know, we th- generally we thought at the time that the, most of the segregation and so forth was in the south, but it was also in the north. Mr. Senator, one of the things that when the report, and you kind of touched on some of this now,
0: um, there's a very famous line that everybody uses over and over again from the report, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate, and unequal, um, and fifty years later, um, you know, we look at the inequality gap in America between whites and people of color in general, and it's just increased. That's right. That where all these games were made in the sixties by children of color, black kids, and children of color in schools, it's sort of falling apart in nineteen eighty-eight, and things really began to kind of tumble and tumble and fall apart. Uh, oversight's gone. I mean, what? I know you don't think that your report that you did in 1968 was for naught. No. But the conditions in some way, and a lot of folks have, a lot of black folks and people of color have made it to the middle class, and there's clearly a difference uh, in many people's lives. But we're still so backwards.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Racism is still so deep when you can go from Obama to Trump. I mean, what do you think is not occurred what do you think has occurred mm-hmm. in these last 50 years to put us in this almost
1: a state of stasis well um, first of all i should say th- th- that was a different time you know we had passed uh, this uh, civil rights act of 1964 and right. we passed the voting rights act of 1965 and uh, they were just beginning to uh, take hold but america made progress on virtually every aspect of race and poverty for about 10 years uh, after the Kerner Report, and then, particularly when the Reagan administration came in, Reagan, you know, said, the "Government's not the solution; the government's the problem," and we began to cut taxes for the rich and the big corporations, and cut programs that benefited the middle class and uh, and poor people, and so that progress we'd made on race and poverty, and we made a lot on you know, desegregation, for example, of schools and housing. Uh, but uh, that progress stopped, and then it began to reverse, and that's been the trend really since the nineteen seventies. So today, there uh, we still have a great deal of racial and ethnic discrimination, and it's growing. Uh, white supremacists are emboldened and they're more violent. We, uh, you know, we elected a black president, and there, we increased the black middle class, and and, and there were some. Uh, progress, there was some progress, but now, for example, the uh, the black unemployment, and same is true generally of, of Latinos, it has continued to be about double what it is for whites, uh, and uh, we have far more poor people than we had then, the, the percentage of poor people has stayed about the same while our country's population has grown, but we have millions more poor people now. And And more of them are in desperate poverty, deeper poverty. Harder to get out of. Inequality of income is worse uh, and worsening. And our cities and schools are resegregating, condemning uh, a lot of millions of black and Latino kids to inferior schools, which gives them little chance of getting out of uh, poverty in their lifetime. So I'm Before I go back to the report itself and ask some questions
0: about why you think there's this disconnect between now and then after 50 years, I mean, one of the things that we seem to be wrestling with today is the depth of racism uh, in our society. Right. I mean, and I think that one of the ways to me it's glaring in many ways, but one, you have the election of Barack Obama, then you have the election of Donald Trump. Yes. And that the majority of people of our race, right. majority of white people in America, yeah. um, seem to vote in some ways out of fear of the other that is detrimental to their own well-being right. and putting these kind of plutocrats in power. Right. So what do you think it is? I mean, how, how do you get to the root of it? How do you think you get, after yeah. all these years you get to the root of it? Because and, and, and I do think it's so pervasive, right. it's,
1: it's almost difficult to root out. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were in a little meeting with uh, Bill Clinton back during the last campaign. He was speaking to a small group, and he turned to me and, and he said to the crowd, Fred, you and I know these people. He's talking about Trump voters. He said, we grew up with them, and they, their lives are not very good. They're, they're not very happy. And, and uh, he's right, uh, I know those people. And I am those people. <laughs> I was born in a two-room house in the midst of the Great Depression in the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma. And uh, I worked my way through school. My grandson can't do that. Uh, my my tuition that first year in the first semester was $48 at the University of Oklahoma. And and, and I had a good job. I was, I'd, I'd learned the printing trade. So, well, first of all, Tuition has skyrocketed for my grandson, and uh, not only that, a job that uh, pays, uh, that he can get, that pays anywhere near like I did uh, compared to the costs in those days. So uh, here you got a lot of people, you take like coal miners, what a cruel thing it is to say to them, I'm gonna bring coal back. Coal is not gonna come back. And we, you know, it's not feasible economically, among other things and these, bank, these coal companies have been going bankrupt. But we're gonna to have to pay attention to those uh, coal people. A lot of them, are, you know, 50 years more, they're never gonna have a good job again. And we've gotta uh, got help them out. And the same is true about, what about all, all the people that are knocked out by automation? That's the biggest problem we've got in, the way, in regard to employment. Uh, even coal, if coal came back, you'd you'd have only one job where there used to be five because of all this automation and and so forth. And that's true in industry. We've got a a lot of manufacturing uh, plants and still, but they don't have the kind of employees that they used to have. We've got to, for people like that, we've got to continue to pay attention to them. As I said, you're 50 years old, you've lost your job in a steel mill or whatever, You're probably never again going to have a really good job. We've got to help train them to where we can, for more modern jobs that'll help them make a living. But where we they can't get jobs or can't find jobs or can't work, why we're going to have to see that they have some income. We're not going to let them starve. Well, the here's a back in the '60s when we're making progress on race and poverty, and we made a lot of progress on poverty under Lyndon Johnson with that anti-poverty program. They those were days when the economy was growing and we were near full employment and and that you know you didn't have this kind of clash now you you've had all this this terrible recession and we've have uh, the economy hasn't been doing that well it's beginning to grow nationwide but the distribution is awful it's not it's mostly going to the top This this income and so uh, if you're a person that's lost your job, and or you're not making enough money to live on, uh, like a lot of those uh, Trump supporters, you you don't probably only have a high school education or less. You're not going to be able to get one of these better-paying jobs, and uh, uh, it's really easy for somebody to demagogue and say, "Well, it, it causes you a problem. Are these undocumented undemig- und- undocumented immigrants or?" Uh, black people, or, or these Hispanics, these Mexicans that are coming in here. And uh, and that's, uh, you know, those kind of cross-counting issues are really tough, and I understand them. And I don't know whether we could ever convince people uh, that, I hope we can, that, they, that the problems of, of blacks and Hispanics, for example, are, are just the same as for these white people that are out of work or whatever, or not making enough income. There's a really great person in America today that impresses me, and that's Reverend William Barber of North Carolina. You interviewed him just the other week. All right, we, we just listened to him last night in a, in, a, in a conference, and he is a leader, you know, of a new Poor People's Campaign, and founded the, the Moral Mondays Movement, which is spreading all around the country. And he absolutely shows that you can put together in the same coalition people across race and ethnic lines, across gender lines and so forth. And, uh, and I always say, people, the, the people in our coalition, this majority coalition, they don't have to love each other, I wish they would, but all they have to do is to see that their interests are in common and, uh, and do what uh, Reverend Barber says, he says we got to quit uh, staying in our separate silos, labor over here and civil rights activists over here, uh, and we've got to make our enemies fight us all at once, not just one at a time, and that, that I think is the way we've got to go. It makes me think of uh, a funny story, a poignant story, not funny.
0: Fannie Lou Hamer, who, yes, from the Mississippi, um, the great grandmother of a movement uh, who stood up. Um, after the, I think this was, might have been 67 or 8, in Mississippi she organized this, this agricultural co op um, where she was getting farmers to pool their resources to make a living and create this new way of working. And it worked for a while before they, it was destroyed. And she was going to organize these white farmers to be part of it in Mississippi. And um, somebody said to her, uh, but you can't organize. You can't get those boys because those boys are cl- in the clan. Hmm. <laughs> and family Emma's response was, "I don't care what they're in, Yeah. because once they start working with us, it's going to change." Right. And it was, you know, there's a. She
1: was an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, and you know that's what's so bad about segregation. In segregation. We we know that if uh, if a family, black family, that is primarily one in poverty moves into uh, a better neighborhood, those kids almost at once begin to do better in school and have much more successful outcomes. And that's one problem about segregation. The other thing is if we're walled off from each other we never get a chance to see that we're you know we're very much alike with the things that we desire for ourselves and for our children and so forth. And that's uh, somehow what we've got to do is create better opportunities for people to live together, know one another, uh, and it'd make it far easier for them to work together. Now,
0: I, I pull off my tattered copy of my 1968 edition of the Kerner Report the other night right. off my shelf, and um, and and so one of the things the Kerner Commission did warned that America had three choices. Yes, And let me just read them. So, if our listeners and you know them already, I know. One was do nothing, which which would risk a repeat of the same violence? Right. Talking about the rebellions that took place in all the cities in America in '67. Policies aimed at "quote unquote" enrich the ghetto, which they argued would "quote" create a permanently divided country. Right. And third, a mixture of short-term policies to strengthen the ghetto with longer-term policies to promote integration. So, um, uh, and and the report also um, blamed violent outbreaks on the on the federal state government is ignoring the plight of, of, of black folks in America and mainstream media ignoring them. So here we are 50 years later. I could, what I just read, mm-hmm. could be written now. Yes. I'm ex- right. I mean, I, you look at the Kerner Commission report and you pull pages out. I mean, you take from pages, right. they could have been written in 2016, 17, 18, Ferguson, Baltimore, anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, So what do you think why do you think we haven't been able to learn from what you all discovered then?
1: Well, we did learn. And why we why
0: couldn't we implement things to make the change yeah. permanent?
1: Well, we, we, we did make a lot of changes for the better. But then the conditions changed. And the and, and basic thing is around uh, inequality of income and, and, and wealth. Uh, black people, in this, out of this last recession, uh, the average black person lost all the wealth they had, which was their house. Uh, and, and they've been tricked into a bad mortgage, and they lose a house. That was all the wealth had. Well, the inequality of income is a really insidious thing because it, it 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 gives the opportunity to the demagogue to prey on those people and say your problem is not the system, or it's not the bankers, it's not the rich people, it's not the corporations. Your problem are these black people. Or your problem is all these undocumented immigrants coming in here from Mexico, and so that's why in our new book that I co-edited with Alan Curtis, oh yeah, just got I haven't read it yet. Just got yeah. the book. Yeah, heal yeah, our yeah, divided yeah. society. We say first of all, we've got to really follow Keynesian economics and infuse some uh, uh, stimulus into this economy. There are a lot of uh, money. I mean, there's a lot of jobs that need to be done. We ought to invest in ourselves in uh, roads and bridges and schools and childcare and alternative energy sources and so forth. And that ought not only would provide jobs for individuals who need jobs, but it also would stimulate this economy so you don't have this awful friction and conflict between the, the people that have a job and those uh, that don't have a job. Do you have hope that we can do that? I do. I'm I'm a kind of an optimist always. I know that. And I would say, for several reasons, one is that if you look back at the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, uh, who I think is a living saint, and others, uh, the times were tougher then than they are now for them. Uh, Jim Crow's uh, those were laws not just practice and the harshest possible racism that they were fighting but they against all odds they resisted and persisted and ultimately prevailed and that gives me heart also the polls all show that a majority of people in this country support all of the things we recommend jobs and training and education and and living wage and uh, health care for all and so forth. Those are popular things if you just uh, uh, get the word to the people and get them organized. The third thing is, that makes me optimistic, there's greater activism in this country right now than I've seen uh, with, for example, new organizations like the Women's March and uh, Black Lives Matter and Indivisible and so forth. And then lastly, is the example of people like, uh, well, first the, the example of Dr. King, but before he uh, was assassinated, he he was leading a poor people's uh, campaign, which uh, the the slogan of which was jobs and freedom, and uh, and he was killed in Memphis. He was in Memphis uh, because he'd gone there to back support. A multiracial garbage workers strike. Well, that's what Bar- William Barber is showing us that we've got to lock arms together, people with the same economic interests, particularly, and, and uh, interests in human rights uh, and equality. And, and those are our common interests and fight on them together. And I'm encouraged by Barber. Well,
0: I am too. Um, Finally, the report talked a lot about racism. It was probably the first major governmental report that ever came out that really talked about how deep white racism is in America and how it has affected our country.
1: First uh, government document that ever used the word racism. Exactly. Yes. This caused some controversy in our group. We had some people in in our commission who were a little more conservative and so we got to that point where we were going to say white racism. And it, it and uh, they, you know, there are people; they're more used to saying intolerance or prejudice. discrimination or prejudice. You know, say, well, well, let's just call it what it is. And uh, I think that was a six-to-five vote we had on some of the toughest votes. The other one was uh, where we had a six-to-five vote. Was you know, Lyndon Johnson thought that these riots were uh, the result of a conspiracy. He thought they were planned and organized and so forth. I tried to personally talk him out of that, uh, but that's what he thought. And so we got to the point where we said there was no conspiracy, that these were not organized or, or planned, uh, riots or violent uh, protests, uh, that the conditions of wretched poverty and harsh racism and hostility to the police, which was based on reality, uh, was such uh, that the the climate in these black sections of the cities were such that they, was such that any random spark could set them off, and that's what what had happened. Well, that took us six to five folds. do we want to say there is no conspiracy? Well, we don't we believe there's no conspiracy. <laughs> the, eventually, you know, we all came along together and adopted the report unanimously. And, uh, the, our our executive director of great guy David Ginsburg, he once said, this is the only uh, unanimous report that was adopted by a 65 <laughs> <laughs> well, vote.
0: I mean, I have to ask this one quick question. So, what, 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 how did you all feel? How did you feel when
1: President Lyndon Johnson decided to squash the report? Yeah, he did, he didn't squash it. He just didn't receive it. That's what I'm saying, right? But right. we made sure he uh, couldn't squash it. We made a deal very early with Benham uh, Books to bring out a, a pocketbook edition. A, paperback edition of this report. That's the one I still have on my shelf. That's right. (laughs) So there wasn't any way it could be suppressed. But uh, we had set up a meeting with Johnson to hand him our report. And we were going to ask for a 6 months' additional life so we could lobby for and advocate for our uh, report and its recommendations. But uh, somebody told him, we think we know who, uh, that this said, uh, here's the words, uh, the White House staff told us this. This, uh, President Johnson, this uh, report is going to ruin you. It has nothing good to say about anything you've done for uh, race and poverty, and it condones and encourages riots, all of which was fault. but uh, uh, Johnson never read the report, and I think he believed that. Plus, he was really beleaguered. You know, the the Vietnam War was going bad. Ted Offensive had happened. he was in bad shape in uh, the primary in New Hampshire and uh, worse in Wisconsin and elsewhere later on. And uh, here we come with this report. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard a, a telephone call he made to uh, Richard Daly, the mayor of Chicago, and he says uh, something like this, uh, Dick, he said, I appointed this commission to look into the riots and uh, they spent $2 million with their investigation and now they want me to spend 80 billion dollars to do something about it and I don't have the money. <laughs> he said, I've also heard a uh, call, a telephone call he made to Dick Russell, Richard Russell, who was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Yeah, from Georgia. He really sounds depressed. He says, Dick, he says, I can't win this war and I can't get out of it. Well, all that was happening about the time that our report was, to go to him and it was just too much Senator Harris <laughs> so welcome again to Bob it was a pleasure to, to right. meet you again see you. you again thank you
0: after, after almost uh, 40 some years alright this land is our land this is our land is our that's, that's, country. It, that's it thanks for listening to our podcast this program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern Nora Belbidia you can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at markinsteinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.